all of the male's life, he will have, on average, three times the libido of a female because his testosterone is so much higher. Remember, girls have a little bit of testosterone from their ovaries and some from their adrenal glands. And we women do need testosterone. We need testosterone to have some sex drive. But males have about threefold different. Welcome to Sex, Body, and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do, and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is Dr. Luanne Bresendine, and Dr. Luanne is a brain specialist. Very, very excited about this show. We're going to be talking all about the female and male brain. Luanne is the Lynn and Mark Benioff's Endowed Chair in Clinical Psychiatry at the University of California in San Francisco. And she is also the New York Times bestselling author of the book, The Female Brain. Welcome to the show, Luanne. Dr. Luanne Bresendine. Have I said that right? That's good. It's Bresendine, but we're good. Bresendine. Okay. Well, I was almost there. Well, I'm going to call you Dr. Brain because you are, first and foremost, a Harvard-trained doctor. You have written three books, The Female Brain, The Male Brain, and now The Upgrade, which we're going to actually talk a little bit more about later on in the show. But first, Luanne, I would love to know what got you into this business of really studying the brain and writing about it. So, you know, when I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, I was, of course, it was the feminist movement. Women were coming up in the world. We were able to choose to do a lot of things that we could, that men could do before. And I was really interested in behavior and behavior and hormones. And it was the first graduating class of the first class where they offered an undergraduate major in neurobiology, which was about, you know, neurobiology, but also about hormones and behavior. So I got very excited about that. And I was very into that. And it was a very weird time because you were not, it was mandatory unisex. I call it the kind of the, the culture of my peer group was like, you weren't really allowed to talk about sex differences then because if anything was different between a male and female, then a woman couldn't ask for equal pay for equal work. Remember, that was the era of the ERA movement, the, the equal pay for equal work. It still, of course, hasn't passed, but here we are, dot, 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 <laughs> all these years later. At any rate, it was that time. And so I, I had to kind of be in the closet about what I was studying in my major. My peers were all like still very much in the feminist movement and where women had to be equal to men. They had the same orgasms. They had to have the same, the same brains in all respects. So that's how I got into the interest uh, in, in the brain to begin mm. with. And when a woman has an orgasm, what happens to her brain? Do you know? So there's a lot of very interesting science about that. And in chapter four of my book, The Female Brain, I talk about things that I'm never, never interviewed on that chapter of the book. Believe me, there's too much very specific things that you're not allowed to say, evidently. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anyway, we know about that. The, mm-hmm. <laughs> so female orgasm is, you, you know, there's, that, there's the excitation stage, the arousal stage. And then as that's happening, you basically an area of the brain called the amygdala. And that's kind of the area that sort of senses fear and anxiety and and scans the environment, you know, for anything that's going to be something that will be dangerous. That area actually in the female brain gets switched off 
right before she gets the high excitation into orgasm. So we know that's a very cool thing that happens in the female brain um, right before orgasm. Well, we also have heard on the show many, many times that it really is our brain that does arouse us. Of course, you know, physical stimulation down there helps, but it really is the brain. And if the dog barks or you hear your children or, you know, something like that goes on, then you have to start all over again. But I think the brain and uh, sexual pleasure is a whole different podcast, and we have so much to get through today. So you've written these books about the female brain, the male brain, and also Upgrade, which is all about midlife and menopause and beyond. So you really talk about how we're stronger than ever at that stage of our lives. Talk to us about that, uh, and also you know, I'm in my midlife, let's say, and, you know, sometimes I'm in a complete brain fog and, you know, I can't focus. And I hear that this is, this is a symptom, but tell us about that and what you have learned about the upgrade, as you call it. Okay. Let's, okay. We're going to contextualize this. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we're going to, I want to have your listeners have an idea about how this all comes down, because it's really important to have women that are suffering in this look at the light at the end of the tunnel and what's going on. So remember, okay, let's go back to when the menstrual cycle is really regular in our 20s and 30s. It's kind of like clockwork. Some women have a 29-day cycle, some women have a 32, some women have a 27. Whatever it is for you that's normal in the 20s and 30s, that is what your regular cycle is. And we all know that, remember, day one of your cycle is day one of bleeding. That's how we count it. So if you go forward to day 14, that's the day when ovulation typically happens in that range of two or three days right around day 14. The reason that's important is that's the peak of your estrogen. It's way up high, and estrogen makes your brain more flirtatious, more verbal. We have kind of like kind of some of our best days in there for the female brain are the few days before ovulation. That's how Mother Nature made it, so you can be more flirtatious and come hither and, you know, end up having sex and getting pregnant. So that's your, that's your get pregnant few days. Now, then what happens after that in the next two weeks of the cycle, remember the progesterone comes on board. And then at the very end of that two weeks, the few days before the bleeding starts, progesterone takes a dive. It's almost like you take, you just, it just like takes a dive right off a cliff and is going down, down, down. That is the calming part of progesterone for the brain all of a sudden is gone. It's like you're pulling a tablecloth right, just right off of a, a table. Boom. Everything sort of collapses. That's where you get the irritability. Or we call it in my clinic, the Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic, we call it the crying over dog food commercials. Oh, yeah. Day. I've probably done that. <laughs> so the reason I review that in your normal cycle is because then you go fast forward to age maybe 42 to 52. When you get into the time where we call it the perimenopause, or in my book, I'm calling it the transition, the transition to menopause, or in my book, the transition to the upgrade, because that's when that, that beautiful choreography of timing between the pituitary and the ovaries starts to break down. And because we start to lose some of our, we've we run out of eggs, basically. We run out of eggs, we run out of follicles at that stage. So the estrogen and progesterone aren't coming in the same way. So there's many days during your cycle, which you think it's your normal cycle, where you're feeling really PMSy, you know, and it can happen on any day. It's not just happening the day or two before your period starts all of a sudden. It could happen like, gosh, you know, in the middle of the cycle for a couple of days or whatever. And that's because 
the pituitary is like screaming at the ovary to make more estrogen, make more eggs, and they're running out. So sometimes your estrogen is like two or three, four times higher in the middle of the cycle, and then it crashes down, and your progesterone may not even come because you're not ovulating. So anyway, that's the mm-hmm. backbone of why you feel like you have PMS all the time yeah. or intermittently through your cycle. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And the brain yep. fog, the brain fog then comes. The brain fog comes at those times. So a quick question on this. So everyone says take estrogen take estrogen and i you know i've heard from many doctors who've been on the show and also my doctor that estrogen is the wonder drug and it will treat all your symptoms is that the case so in some ways it actually is and it's remember it's gotten a really bad rap since the 2002 big study that happened and think about that we're in 2022 and that's 20 years ago so at that time basically all research in kind of this area of women's health like just went underground or it just stopped. So, you know, that that was a tragedy because now there's lots about it. I'm sure you've had that experience too, Kate, with your doctors where it's like it's like they can't tell you anything definitively. They can't they don't really have that knowledge base isn't there. So this the studies now are just starting up again in using more estrogen for women in order to for a whole lot of reasons in the perimenopause and menopause to try to help women's brains not have as much susceptibility to dementia or Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. but that's another study. You know, we can talk mm-hmm. about that, but mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons you'll see now starting now estrogen is being recommended for a lot of reasons to women during this, not waiting until the menopause, but starting in those four or five years at the tail end of your of your perimenopause. So what it does is it, it will replace what you've lost. It'll also keep your pituitary calmer from making these big spikes of estrogen that cause irritability and uh, tearfulness and the big, the up and down part of the hormones that makes you feel like you have PMS intermittently through your whole cycle. Mm. So yes, Mm. what a lot of doctors do though is they put the women on a birth control pill during those last four or five years during the transition because it has enough estrogen in it and progesterone in it. So it'll stabilize your period. So there's a different reason sometimes to take whatever kind of birth control pill your doctor wants you to take during those stages at the end will help smooth things out a bit for you. It's not panacea, but it does help. Right. So you talk about brain fog and uh, you talk about, you know, estrogen being a great treatment for that. Now, sleep. Sleep is a huge issue for the brain. We know that for our well-being. Why is it that during the upgrade of midlife menopause period of our lives, do we struggle with sleep? Now, we've talked about moodiness and we've talked about brain fog, the sleep thing. Why is that a thing? And and what do we do about it? It's a very big deal. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the top things women come to me about is their sleep problem because during this time. And basically, the sleep cycle is very, very sensitive to hormones. And so if the hormones are being kind of erratic, then, then the sleep may be erratic as well. And like a lot of women, so the, the thing called sleep hygiene, you've all probably heard of sleep hygiene. So doctors, we, we all try and help patients with getting the best sleep they can. And that's so important for brain aging. I mean, you really, the, the sleep, if you have to focus on anything at this period, it's like focusing on getting good sleep. And the, the top things we know, the hormone disruption can really cause people to have difficulty with sleep, sometimes because they're having warm warm flushes or hot flashes. They wake up at night with that, and that, that will wake your brain up, of course, if you're too hot. You know, you're throwing the covers off, you're that kind of thing that because estrogen and the estrogen has gone down and the estrogen somehow 
If you think about being in a room with a temperature is 10 degrees hotter all of a sudden, you're going to feel hot, right? Everybody's going to feel hot. But if you're in the perimenopause, menopause, if the temperature changes by one or two degrees, you're going to feel hot. Nobody else is going to be hot, but you're going to be hot. What's called the thermostat in your brain has actually been readjusted, not for the rest of your life, but for this period of the perimenopause and menopause, it gets readjusted. And that's difficult for the brain to sleep. The other thing that happens for women, think about it. Okay, if you're having brain fog and you're waking up really fuzzy, what do you grab for? We grab for the caffeine, right? We grab for the coffee. We grab for something in the morning to kind of like sugar. try to... sugar. Yeah, sugar and caffeine. <laughs> the devil. <laughs> the devil. Yeah, the devil's in the details, right? The sugar <laughs> and caffeine. So one of the things that I know from treating women's sleep disorders for 30 years is that one of the biggest troubles for women, especially because of the way we metabolize caffeine more slowly than men, is that if you have trouble what's called falling asleep, that's called initial insomnia, falling asleep problems, that is often the result of having too much caffeine. You just can't let your, your brain just can't calm down and fall into sleep. So the first thing to do is start to take it away. Yeah. So, you know, I have to say that I've done a lot of research on this because I actually do really suffer with sleep issues and have forever. It doesn't matter about the stage of my life. I've always struggled with sleep. My mom and my dad also have struggled with sleep. We're just a, a family of non-sleepers. And I only have one cup of coffee. I have caffeine once a day in the morning, and then I avoid it like the plague. I'll have caffeine-free drinks or water or whatever. And I just can't fall asleep. So I have this insomnia. What is it called again? Beginning insomnia? It's called initial initial, initial insomnia. So it's, it's a difficulty initiating sleep. Initiating sleep is hard yeah. for you. Not, not staying asleep. Once you get to sleep, it's okay. Now, is there not, I'm not calling myself an overachiever, but you know, when you, when you're, you're running empires and juggling and mothering and managing houses and doing all the stuff that we do so well as females because of our brains, because of our brilliant brains, is there not something about that that is keeping sleep away? So you're multitasking and juggling so many things that your your brain is still working. You're not when you're trying to go to sleep. There's there's two or three balls that you just don't want to fall that you're trying to keep up in the air, right? And so your brain is just over time working on yeah. them. So yes, that's why a lot of the recommendations are for a meditation practice to try to help with that kind of multitasking overload and being too busy, which really destroys your ability to be patient, mm. to be patient with yourself, mm. to be patient with your kids, especially if they're teenagers, to be patient with your, your partner, your spouse. It's a multitasking and keeping too many balls in the air really ruins your patience. Gosh, I'm feeling calmer already, Luann, just from listening to you. <laughs> I want to get back to the brain and anxiety, you know, anxiety, mental health issues, pill popping. We talked about this before. Uh, it's just so prevalent around the world, not just in America. You go to the doctor or you go to the psychiatrist or the therapist, whatever, and they're like, okay, well, here are the pills. So two questions. How do those really affect our brain health? And how bad are sleeping pills for our brain and body? Let's take it apart a little bit about also taking it into the female zone a bit, right? Mm -hmm. the, to the female brain zone. Because remember, the female to male ratio of anxiety disorders or anxiety is about four to one. 
And that doesn't start in childhood. That starts not till the menstrual cycle starts. So something about the hormones makes us more sensitive to anxiety and more sensitive to depression and mood disorders. That's something that's been well known for many years and that it starts during the stage and age when women start their menstrual cycle. So, and that's going to continue on in terms of a, a, a susceptibility to hormone changes and anxiety. Is that why tweens are happy, so happy-go-lucky until they hit puberty and then everything then changes? Well, then actually, yes, then the moods, what we call the moods start, the yeah. mood starts. And I think the, the moms recognize it a little bit, but the poor dads, they get they feel like they just got hit up aside the head with a frying pan. They don't even know what hit them, the dads. They go like, oh my God, my little girl has completely changed into something different. Yeah. They've got a menopausal wife and a, and a moody teenage daughter. Lucky guys, <laughs> lucky guys. And they and they haven't hit their andropause yet. That's the men don't seem to hint their their change of life until they're in their 60s. Well, we're going to talk 70s. about that in a minute. That yeah, exactly. So, but this, the mental health issues of like hormones and mood in women are, are, are really important. And I wanted to, I don't want to jump over your particular question about the suggested cures for this in our culture. So, you know, there are times if you have se severe suicidal depression and severe mental health issues, you're going to need to probably be on some kind of medication. So I don't want to leave that that end of the spectrum out. So, well, let's work backwards from that group because a lot of women come to my clinic in the perimenopause saying, Dr. Brizendon, you know, I the joy has gone out of my life. And if I didn't have children and a husband and whatever, you know, I wouldn't want to go on living this way because this is, you know, for the rest of my life. So let's, I, I want to honor the fact that there are some, there are some dark days through this thing called perimenopause or the transition that are definitely down in the dumps. Now, it varies a lot for different women, but what you're talking about is sometimes putting women on the, the birth control pill to stabilize their hormones during this time or on estrogen during this time is a way to help her brain have a little bit of a, a better floor under it and not mm -hmm. not not have to fall through the floor into the basement with their mood. So um, um, that is definitely worth a try before you jump into antidepressants like, you know, all the SSRIs, like the Paxil, Lexapro, Celexa, Zoloft, Prozac, you know, all of the all of the medications that can be used and can be helpful for people who have like things that, that can't be fixed with adjusting their hormones. Mm. Now, of course, what we also know for sure is that before going on some of these medications, that exercise, healthy diet, you know, those kinds of things are also extremely helpful at this time in our lives, right? Oh, boy, you said it, Kate. So mm -hmm. I think that, that the cornerstone of brain health is that getting exercise. Mm -hmm. And that can even be going out and walking around your block for 20 minutes, just as long as it's regular, consistent. And, you know, anybody that wants to start, you know, any kind of new habit in their life, kind of like brushing and flossing your teeth, whatever, you got to have it mm -hmm. part of your habit. And, you know, if you 14 days of starting something new can be starting a new habit or breaking an old yeah. habit. If you're if you're a smoker, that one of the worst things for the female brain as you get older is smoking. It really, really yeah. destroys I just don't get the people who smoke. I don't get it. Well, it's good job that I got a new puppy, and one of the reasons I got the puppy is because my daughter begged me. Like, I've never seen a more powerful, 
PowerPoint presentation than my daughter asking for a puppy. But at the same time, I oh, realized I realized that um, big heart. You have a big heart, Kate. Big well, heart. <laughs> I also it was a little selfish because I I knew that I was going to do that twenty minute walk every day, and I just think walking. I would say walking and swimming are just so so good for you, and it gets your endorphins going. And you, exactly, you, you yes. feel elated, right? So we know good brain stuff is going. Or pickle, or pickleball. And everybody's playing pickleball these days. Yeah, pickleball. Oh, do they? I've never heard of that before. <laughs> yes. Um, so first of all, I mentioned this at the beginning of our chat, but you are an expert on the female brain and the male brain. I would like to know the differences between the female brain and the male brain. I watched this amazing man once at a conference talk about it, and he had a diagram up. Uh, that showed the female brain and the male brain. I think it was at time of orgasm or being aroused. And it was like a minefield of difference. So what do you have on that, Luan? What can you tell us about that? Okay, just let's let's start off with saying that the male and female brain are more alike than different. After all, we are the same species. Yes. Okay, that said, we can go into to a lot of the differences. Now, at the moment of conception, when sperm meets egg, remember, mm-hmm. it's if you're carrying if it's carrying an X chromosome, it'll be an XX female. If it's carrying a Y, that fetus will be male. So that fetus is male with a Y chromosome about eight weeks into the gestation. The fetus testes, testicles start pumping out huge amounts of testosterone. It marinates the brain, the male brain and starts changing all this circuitry in the body and in the brain so that by the time the baby pops out, it's going to have a male brain. And if it doesn't have the testosterone marinating its brain, it'll be female. So just think of that. Basically, the wiring diagram is basically the same, but it's been really modified during that nine months in utero by testosterone to change the diagram of the wiring circuit. So pop out and then... We have all of the cultural and the environmental thing, you know, all the things we treat little boys and girls differently, all the stuff you already know about how that happens. You grow up until age, let's say 10 or 11, the little girls start to pump out lots of estrogen as their egg follicles start to develop and they're going to go into puberty. And the little boys, about a year later, their testicles again start to pump out huge amounts of testosterone, like 25-fold difference, boom, Mm. between the ages of like, you know, 10 and 15 for boys. And, you know, the average age of the average age for puberty for boys, we we measure by the the onset of the wet dream, Mm -hmm. which is 13.5 for boys on average. And the menstrual cycle for girls is 12.1 on average. So Mm. that at that stage is so the difference is in puberty are always, you know, the boy gets like elongation of the penis, growth of the testes, they got the, the facial hair, they get the, the muscular development, and girls get the, the breast and the figure and the menstrual cycle, you know, all the things we already know that are so different. And so you can just see how the brain is coming along with the body in its difference. We can't like, we, there's not a plexiglass plate that we're looking in the brain watching as it changes during these these times into puberty and into adulthood. So that's all of the differences in the male and female brain. All of the male's life, he will have on average three times the libido of a female because his testosterone is so much higher. Remember, girls have a little bit of testosterone from their ovaries and some from their adrenal glands. And we women do need testosterone. We need testosterone to have some sex drive. But males have about threefold difference. So their sex drive is on average always about 
threefold difference, except maybe those two or three days before ovulation mm-hmm. <laughs> when women's yeah. testosterone is the highest. And then then we women are very horny and we're, we're happy totally. to those, have sex. Those three, four <laughs> days, yeah. Uh, I think I'm going to miss so, those days. <laughs> <laughs> so what we also know is that a man goes through andropause, which is the male equivalent of a menopause. Is that when his androgen starts to decrease? So the testicles will produce lots and lots of testosterone, and they start to, the the testosterone in the male starts to decrease at about age 30, but it only decreases like one, two, or three percent a year, you know, so it's going down very, very slowly. So unlike we women who have, we kind of just literally fall off a cliff and stop producing estrogen over the course of a couple of years. The male is more drawn out over the course of 30, 40, 50 years. Males have like a lot more hormones at age 60 than women do. So, but men do start having their libido decrease. The number of times they want to have sex per week decreases quite quite a lot mm-hmm. during the andropause, starting at age like for a lot of men around 55, 60, 65. So it's not the same as women, but they do have a change and a decrease in their hormones as well, thank goodness. Mm. And um, when women go through menopause, if they're taking estrogen, and I I also want to get into really defining what HRT is, it flies around all the time. And is that just estrogen? Is it more things? But if we take treatment, is our libido going to be intact or will it still decrease during menopause? So not all women's libido decreases during menopause, but a big, big majority of women complain about their libido changing. And usually women aren't complaining about it, that their partner's complaining and saying, you know, well, you know, when are we going to have sex or, you know, what's happened to our sex life or whatever it is. Remember, that's the age I remember when I was younger, I was thinking like how... Why? Why? At age 50, these men are all running off with their 25-year-old mm-hmm. secretaries in, in the old days. That was kind of what was what was going on. So males and affairs during a woman's, uh, their partner's menopause is, is, is sort of a well-known, that may be a bit old-fashioned, but that's kind of like the males are still much more interested than the females. Our libido will change because our testosterone is going down. Remember, the ovary is making 90% of a woman's testosterone before the perimenopause and menopause is made from a woman's ovary, and about 10% is made from their adrenal glands. And then as the follicles in the ovary are depleted, we don't have any more, then most of our testosterone, our androgen, comes from the adrenal gland. So we have quite a big decrease in our testosterone through our 40s and into our 50s. And I I've had lots of women where we've replaced their testosterone levels. And in Europe, they have um, really good products for women in this regard for replacing their testosterone at a female-appropriate dose. And in the United States, it's been tried to be FDA-approved every few years for the last 20 years, and it's never gotten through. Mm. So anyway, any of your listeners who want to work on a project of trying to, to bring what European women have to the United States in that regard would be a very nice idea. Well, I'll just take the plane over to England and fill it <laughs> We're full. counting on you, Kate. Yeah. Kate, we're counting Don't on you. I <laughs> have a plane, wish I did. But anyone out there who has a plane and wants to fly me over for a plane full of testosterone, then there'll be a lot happier people over here. I'll tell you one story. You know, I had this woman who was a who was she's a school teacher, and she anyway she um, they the pharmacy prescribed you know a compounding pharmacy like 
10 times the level that she was supposed to have as a woman. And she, I guess they gave her the male dosage by mistake instead. She'd been using it for two or three, four weeks after she had her appointment with me. And she calls me up and she says, Dr. Brissendine, I have to just, she says, it's very embarrassing, very embarrassing. She says, but you know, I'm having to go into the bathroom between classes and sort of relieve myself. I feel like a 19-year-old boy. <laughs> we, we want and that. She says, <laughs> she says, my my orgasm comes so fast, it's almost like it hardly even happened. Wow. And that was because she was taking testosterone? She was taking the male male size dose instead. So they had made it, they had made it too high of a dose. So I just it you get a very robust effect. So usually if women take it. Take it the the gel that they rub on there. You rub on the inside of your arms or some some place like that. It usually you'll get some vaginal warming and a, a feeling kind of a, a sexual flush. They mm. call it after about like ten or fifteen minutes after taking. Oh wow! But you can't get that here. You can get it here through compounding pharmacies. Yes, indeed, you can. You can okay. In Europe, you can get it. Uh, basically, just it's in a it's in, in a nice little plunger that they just prescribe. Fantastic. I'll put that on my list on my next trip. <laughs> Don't tell your husband. <laughs> try, try it out yourself first and then see how you like it. Okay. <laughs> I don't have a husband. I have a lover, Luann. Let's get okay, this right. Okay, all right. You're, yeah. you're, you're a partner. Lovers your lover, are the way say. to go. Lovers are the way okay. to go. All right. Now I want to touch on, we've talked a lot about children and our children and what happens to their brain when they go through puberty. You've got a sweet little girl who's just the apple of your eye and then suddenly she hates you. What is going on with her brain? So remember that the developmental stages, right? Lots of us parents have read those parenting books about like the developmental stages of childhood and blah, blah, blah into puberty. And you can tell that your little girl is starting to have her follicles around her eggs in the ovaries start to develop estrogen because she starts to get breast buds. You know, around Mm -hmm. the nipple, you start to get that puffy little nipple first for a while, and then it grows into, you know, the breasts start to grow. And then at 11, 12, 13, she starts to get, you know, full-on breasts. The training bras come out, etc. And that is what's telling you also that her brain is getting marinated by estrogen and testosterone. The highest testosterone in females is age 19. Okay, so so that moodiness is going to last until she's about 19. Is that right? Well, you know, maybe a few years after that. But, you know, she, she'll be on her, you know, the female brain is pretty much completely rebuilt by the time they're 19 to 20, 21. Boys aren't till like 21, 22, 23. Mm-hmm. And what's happening in the brain is that estrogen is making, if you think about a garden that starts to sprout in the spring. Everything is sprouting all over in the brain. These branches in the brain are sprouting all over the place in the brain, in a teen brain. Their brain growth is enormous. There haven't been that much brain growth in, in, since the first two years of their life. So it's there are sprouts going every which way in their brain, and they have not yet been pruned, which means that the signals can go every which way. Mm-hmm. And keeping things consistent and being focused and not sort of flying off the handle at you or like just disregarding you and, you know, going behind, you know, slamming the door in the bedroom or that kind of thing or just like not responding to your texts or not responding to your, you know, whatever, whatever it is that they're doing. Their brain is under construction slash reconstruction, which is important to remember that part. They're also going through the stage of what we call separation individuation, where they are getting ready to launch themselves 
as an independent person in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a while. It doesn't happen just, it doesn't happen in six months. It happens like over six years. But it's really disturbing to parents because it's um, a time where it's very hard to have a normal conversation with them about anything. And they really need you to be patient with them. Really need a parent's patience. Yeah. I've started to negotiate with her already. I, I, I've asked her if she will sign a contract to say that she will always be nice to me and always give me hugs because I know this is coming. And she assures me that she will, but who knows what's going to happen. But that that's super, super interesting. Now, I don't think we finished on HRT. So we know this testosterone. We know this estrogen. What else is in the HRT family that we should know about and be using during this transitional period of our lives? Okay, let's talk about the controversial hormone called progesterone. Remember the word progesterone, pro, and the word gestation means pregnancy, gestation. You're having the gestation, right, mm -hmm. of the fetus. And progestation means it aids in keeping the pregnancy together. When you're pregnant, you're progesterone is 30 to 40 times higher than it is during your normal menstrual cycle. So progesterone is really important. It comes on only after we have ovulation during the cycle. So the, uh, the progesterone in the cycle doesn't happen on days 1 through 14. It starts to happen after day 14, so 15 until the cycle begins. So what it's doing is it's, it's hanging around. It's coming out of the follicle that's making all of your progesterone go up. It helps keep the lining of the uterus intact just in case there's an ovulated egg that actually gets inseminated and gets down there ready to implant in your uterus for pregnancy. So it's very important. Mother Nature made progesterone as a really important hormone to keep the pregnancy happening and to keep it intact. So Remember, it's also when progesterone drops that you shed the lining out of your uterus. It starts the period. The progesterone drop is what's the trigger for shedding the bleeding. So the reason in HRT that it's important, if you still have a uterus, the fertilizer to build up that lining in your uterus is the estrogen. It makes all the, the nice cushy blood cushion that's in the uterus. And the progesterone is what kind of makes it solidify, holds it in place until the progesterone drops and then it allows the uterus lining to shed. The reason you need to take progesterone if you're going to be taking estrogen, if you have a uterus, is that it keeps it from having what's called overgrowth mm -hmm. and causing any kind of cancer of your lining or anything like that. So it's a really important thing to be taking your progesterone if you're also taking estrogen, unless you've had a hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. So that's the progesterone story, and it is in HRT. It's, remember, also in the birth control pills. Mm -hmm. So that's why a lot of doctors will give women a type of HRT during the perimenopause, like age 42 to 52. A lot of women are put back on a on mm -hmm. sometimes a, just a consistent birth control pill that has both progesterone and estrogen in it mm -hmm. so that you keep the balance in your uterus. So that's why it's important. But the other thing progesterone does is when it gets in your brain, let's talk about progesterone in the brain. Because in my clinic, we used to call progesterone psychiatric poison because it can really cause, it can cause moodiness. It can cause moodiness. It can cause brain fog. It can cause a lot of things yeah. that are the symptoms we don't like. Mm -hmm. So you have to have it in the right balance. Mm -hmm. But the, the progesterone, when it gets into your brain, it changes into a compound called aloe. We call it A-L-L-O, aloe. And it 
the aloe, which is, stands for a longer name called allopregnenolone, but it's we call it aloe. You can see why we call it aloe. And it it hits all the receptors in your brain that Valium does. Okay. Meaning that it it's a very calming effect, mm. like having a lot of Valium in your brain. But when you then so when you take it away, your brain is almost in a Valium withdraw and becomes much more nervous. So that's what happens at the end of the menstrual cycle when you go into PMS is because the progesterone is dropping like a rock and all of a sudden all the Valium in your brain is going away and you're in Valium withdrawal. You're like a nervous, you can be a nervous wreck and crying and, you know, that that whole bit of being in what's called basically progesterone withdrawal. Mm, that is so interesting because I never knew why this was, but I had to do fertility treatment to get pregnant with my daughter and, you know, I did all the hormones. I was shooting up every day and I was just on cloud nine. I felt so happy. And I was like, I'm sure this is not how how most women go through this. But yeah, I, that now I know why. It's so interesting. Now is the time of the show where we do some rapid fire. So I don't want you to overthink this, but I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions, mostly about your books, actually. Most interesting fact in the female brain. The female brain and the male brain are different. Bottom line, they're just, they're different. No matter what someone tells you, they're different. Uh -huh. <laughs> and how do you protect your brain from brain disorders like dementia and I guess Alzheimer's and other diminishing things that go on with the brain? Okay, three things we know. Good sleep, mm -hmm. good exercise and food, and estrogen. Okay. All right. That's fantastic. Favorite Netflix show that you've seen recently? We're watching uh, Peaky Blinders right now. Oh, yeah. That's an English, an English show. That's fantastic. Favorite language that your book has been translated to the female brain? Lithuanian. Weirdest question that you've had from a man regarding the female brain? Why don't women have the same sex drive as a man? <laughs> You know, it's so funny. I was interviewed yesterday by a big network, actually, and I was interviewed about why do women stop giving blowjobs as their relationship develops and they become, you know, in a long-term relationship. Do you know the answer to that? Because <laughs> I was a little... Um, you know, I had to, oh, I had to do some research. Please tell me, Kate. I'm interested. I want to know. I had to <laughs> do some research. I think it's the same old, same old, right? Where in the beginning of a relationship, I mean, this is what I put it down to. In the beginning of a relationship, it's all very exciting. You want to please each other. You're exploring. You're trying to figure out, you know, what your body wants and, and what your partner wants. And then you sort of get it down to a bit of a, a rhythm. And then I, <laughs> I think there's many different factoids that, prevent oral sex moving forward, you know, that you're juggling life, you've got kids, you're tired, you can't be bothered, you'd rather have a cup of tea, smell, size. Taste, taste. <laughs> yeah, or, or not reciprocated, right? As in, if, it, yeah. if it's not coming back at you, you know, you, you're going to be less likely to want to do it. But but this interview all came out of Sex in the City and the latest show where Charlotte was seen to be giving her husband uh, oral sex and their daughter walked into the bathroom. And so at their lunch, you know, the girls were talking about it and they were all very surprised that she was still giving her husband. Still doing it, still, still doing, doing it, it yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> but 
Yes, anyway. I know I have girlfriends. I have girlfriends in their late 60s and early 70s, and their their husband wants sex every morning still. Wow. And she wants it too? Well, no. She doesn't. She's not totally against it, but it's like, and he's taking testosterone injections, you know, so his libido is still really high. And I just, you know, whatever. She's still, it's it's for their, he says, she said, well, she does it for their marriage. Well, yeah, I don't think, I, I have a girlfriend like that who was in exactly the same position and she started to get bitter and, you know, it has to be a balance and we should not be doing anything that we don't want to do. Amen to that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Authenticity, living your truth, living your truth. Absolutely. That's what the upgrade is all about, not, living your truth. Especially not sexually being forced to do anything. It's just not Cool. It's not on. On that note, Dr. Luan, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. You are brilliant. Again, three incredible books, The Female Brain, The Male Brain, and Upgrade, which is all about midlife and menopause and how to sail through it with a healthy brain. And you can get everything. You'll be able to see everything at thebodyagency.com. And I highly, highly recommend getting these books. As Jane Fonda said, I wish I'd had this book many, many years ago. And Jane Fonda knows what she's talking about. So, Luann, thank you so much <laughs> for being on the show. And I look forward to having you back very soon. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.